Hi, my name is Reese Wells. My pronouns are he, him, his, and this is the Counseling Connection Podcast. Welcome to the first Counseling Connection Podcast episode. I'm really excited. The topic for today is looking at the intersection between mindfulness and addiction. Today, I am interviewing Dr. Mark Schwartz, who was my professor and academic advisor in the Clinical Mental Health Counseling Program at Appalachian State University. Dr. Mark Schwartz is an associate professor and program director in the Department of Human Development and Psychological Counseling, focusing on clinical mental health counseling at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. He has a PhD in counselor education and supervision from North Carolina State University. He is a licensed clinical mental health counselor supervisor, nationally certified counselor, licensed clinical addiction specialist, and certified clinical supervisor. Dr. Schwartz is also a member of the North Carolina Board for Licensed Clinical Mental Health Counselors and a former president of the North Carolina Counseling Association. His research interests include mindfulness interventions in counseling and addictions treatment and counselor development. In this episode, we're creating operational definitions of mindfulness, examining the science behind addiction, and looking at how research is indicating that mindfulness can be a powerful tool in lowering rates of addiction relapse. You can find articles and additional information from my website at reesewells.com. And now, Dr. Mark Schwartz. Okay, I'm here with Dr. Schwartz, uh, and I'm really excited and grateful for this first podcast episode. Um, just for a bit of context, Dr. Schwartz was my academic advisor at Appalachian State University, and he was kind enough to be my first host uh, on the Counseling Connection podcast. So our topic for today is exploring the intersection between addiction and mindfulness. Dr. Schwartz, thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Reese. I, I'm, I'm really excited to be here. I'm really proud of you for doing this. and. Uh, bringing a unique perspective um, to the counseling field. Great. Um, I know that we had some conversations about this, but I'm hoping that just for the people listening, you could give your operating definition of mindfulness and what that means to you. Sure. Yeah. I think before I, I would jump into that, I would just talk a little bit about how I came to be interested in mindfulness because for me, it was um, you know, it, it wasn't a, a natural path for me to be interested in uh, or, or to follow or research or incorporate mindfulness into my practice. I was a pretty and have been a pretty traditional CBT um, counselor over, over my clinical career. Um, but part of um, uh, many years ago, um, I would say probably in the early 2000s, I ended up attending a training on DBT, Dialectical Behavioral Therapy. Just was interested in that, um, was working with a lot of folks with personality issues, and so I thought that the DBT piece would really be helpful for me. Went to that training, and part of that, I think it was a three-day intensive training in DBT. Obviously, a major part of DBT is mindfulness and mindfulness components, and so that was really the first time that I was introduced to that. Um, we did a lots of experiential activities uh, in that training, uh, mindfulness meditation activities, and I had a really profound experience, Reese, during that. I'd never done anything like that before. Some, I had, I, it just was just a really um, impactful thing for me to have, have experienced that myself. And, and, and at, at the same time, this, this light bulb went on for me 
that this is a pretty simple concept, mindfulness. Um, but it's kind of difficult to maintain in your life as, a, as an all-encompassing component. And so I started thinking about it from there and really researching the, the mindfulness piece to that. And mindfulness, you know, just in the past, I would say 15 years has really integrated itself into clinical work, into the counseling field. Um, you know, when I went to that training, mo most people weren't talking much about mindfulness. Counselors weren't. Um, uh, and then literally five years later, I remember going to an ACA conference and walking down the, the vendor hall where all of the vendors were and every single vendor table had mindfulness books were promoting mindfulness tapes or whatever or trainings and everybody and every counselor that I knew was talking about mindfulness. And, uh, you know, so that's part of, uh, the interesting, I think, um, you know, place that we've gotten to in the field is that it's become a, you know, sort of an accepted commonplace. And I think the empirical evidence, the empirical studies that have come out on mindfulness has supported that. Um, and it's made us feel better about, you know, mindfulness as being a, a legitimate uh, intervention in, in, in a variety of different ways. But for me, um, you know, even you know, mindfulness has always been just sort of a, a, a choice that people make. Uh, as a definition, I think about it as a choice, a conscious choice that people make to, to remain in the moment um, and then to immerse themselves in that moment. And that's one component of it. The second component of it is, is that while you're in that moment, that there is this orientation to experience that you need to develop. And that is the non-judgmental component of mindfulness, which I think is the much tougher part of mindfulness. Um, and as I started to think about uh, mindfulness as uh, something that I wanted to you know, delve into and, and practice myself and incorporate in my own personal life and see that I started to see the benefits for that in a variety of different types of presenting problems. And um, addictions has always been my clinical focus. It's always been my research focus, uh, addictions counseling. Um, and, you know, I have been a pretty open critic of the addictions field and the uh, the treatment field of four addictions, particularly in the past 10 years, um, that um, it is one of, I think, one of the fields that um, has been slow to change, uh, to look at new interventions and, and interventions outside of CBT and 12-step and things like that. And we can talk more later about maybe where the future of addictions counseling is headed, but um, I know that um, for me, uh, I started to, uh, you know, look at mindfulness and addictions and seeing if there was any, you know, place where those two things could meet uh, efficiently and effectively. Um, and then specifically within addictions, I'm interested in uh, applying mindfulness into folks that are in, already in recovery and, and using mindfulness to reduce their potential for relapse. And so that's where I, I have spent, I would say, probably the last five years of my, of my, of my life thinking about that component. Uh, mindfulness, um, you know, is a skill and it can be taught. And, and so I think one of the things that gets tricky um, as counselors when we're introducing mindfulness to clients or particularly clients in, uh, who have addictions issues and maybe in a, in a treatment um, setting like an inpatient or an outpatient setting is that, you know, mindfulness and meditation have all of these other connotations associated with it. People have a, when they think about meditation, you know, they might start thinking about um, sort, sort of visuals in their head about what that, you know, cross-legged on a mountaintop and all of that, you know, you know that kind of thing. Um, and so what it was, what was important to me was to 
really bring mindfulness sort of out of that mystic that mysticism and bring it into saying this is a practical logical skill that you can use in your life um, that will improve lots of things for you and not only that but it has uh, growing really significantly growing uh, neurobiological uh, research that shows that you know when you meditate over time and practice that that it changes your brain and so that was really important to me too because i do think that the history or i mean i'm sorry the future of addictions counseling lies in understanding the neurobiology of what's happening in the brain and so i so so you know as as i think about mindfulness it makes sense because mindfulness does the things that we would want it to do in the mind of a, of, a, of a person with addiction because the brains of people with addictions are different than people who don't have addictions. Um, and so, yeah, that's a, a long answer to a pretty sh short question. I think it's a skill. I think it's an orientation to experience. And I think it's, it's, it's accessible to anyone who's willing to put in the practice. Right. Yeah, thanks for that explanation. Just to, you know, conceptualize a little bit, what, what I heard is that, you know, mindfulness has really grown <laughs> the like our public awareness of mindfulness has exploded in the last 15 years and something that i really appreciated you saying is that this this has made its way into counseling not because it's trendy and it's because it's you know around <laughs> every corner on every instagram post by influencers but it's it's there because there's empirical evidence supporting the neurobiology of what happens when people practice mindfulness consistently and habitually. And um, that, that sounds like the, what is being integrated into addictions research and just into general mental health research right now. And for you, what I heard is that there's two main parts of mindfulness, one being just present moment awareness. And the second and more challenging part is that non-judgment piece. Mm -hmm. So can you, yeah. can you just clarify what non-judgment looks like? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, as, as I started my research on this, you know, long ago and kind of trying to settle on where I felt comfortable with um, working uh, with mindfulness is that I, what I realized was missing was that there was really no operational definition to mindfulness. And for me, uh, and then I know, I know when I approach it as a researcher, it takes uh, the romanticism out of the mindfulness piece. But for me, it needed to be operational in nature so that we could teach it as a skill. And so, um, you know, one of the one of the articles and one of the foundational pieces of research that I that I really rely on on an ongoing basis is um, Bishop and uh, Bishop in 2004, Scott Bishop out of uh, University of Toronto, and and several other uh, co-writers with him. Um, really developed an operational definition of mindfulness, which I, I use all of the time. And it's really two components. That first component is really this idea of self-regulation of attention. That mean, and, and I even like the term of that because it, what it implies is that we have power to do that. You know, that, that, our, that our experiences aren't, you know, thrust upon us and that we're victims of that, but that we can control that to a certain degree. And, I'm, and that, now, you know, Reese, I'm assuming that we're dealing with, um, you know, neurological brain neurobiological brains that don't have things like psychosis involved in all of that but i'm assuming if you have the capacity to be able to self-regulate your attention normally then there's that component so that, that this idea of sustained attention um you know so 
component one of, of, their, of this operational definition is sustained attention, which is just your ability to build over time your, 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 your ability to, to pay attention for longer periods of time. It's like the, the going to the gym for your brain. So if you go to the gym, um, which I don't, but if you go to the gym um, and you used to go on your first day and you try to, you know, um, uh, bench press, you know, 150 pounds, 200 pounds, it's not going to work. You have to build up your strength over time to be able to um, work out harder and lift more, you know, heavier weights. So the brain is the same way. Uh, as you start out, it, it, you're going to fail often in this sustained attention. You may be able to do it for a few seconds or 10 seconds or 15 seconds, but then, you know, your mind's going to go off somewhere else. And, um, and so that's the second component to this self-regulation is this idea of being able to, to, it's called switching, which is really just under, is just having insight that you, that your brain went somewhere else and that you're switching it back to the moment. And if you, and, and it's really just doing that over and over and over and over again to the, to the part where you ultimately can increase the periods of time where you're, where you're literally staying in the moment, your attention is in in the immersed in the moment that you're in but but the brain is naturally going to to move to these other places they're going to think backwards to they're going to ruminate they're going to project you know so that's sort of what you know when we think about mindfulness we think about anxiety and depression we think about rumination we think about projection but uh and 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 you know i always use this metaphor when i do uh presentations on mindfulness i put up this this tree with all of these branches going all of these different directions. And that's kind of our mind because our mind goes off on these elaborative thoughts. One thought leads to another. Just think about when you're laying in bed and you're trying to go to sleep and something pops up in your head and then that leads to another thing and that leads to another thing. And before you know it, it's been two hours of sitting there going, going through that in your head. And what mindfulness can do is really prune that tree. It can, it can start to help you um, reduce the amount of elaborative processing that's happening. And that's, that's, that's that one component. So th those are teachable things. Those, those three things are teachable. You know, we can break those down into components and, sh and show it to a client. The second part, as you mentioned, is, is tougher, and that's developing this orientation to experience, which is, you know, um, uh, the first thing is that, uh, that we acknowledge and all of our thoughts and our feelings that we, we and, and, and the second piece to that is that while we acknowledge them, we don't place any significant values on any of them, um, uh, uh, give anyone um, any more um, power than another. So we accept all of them as equal, even the bad ones. Uh, and th this, will, this, will, this will be important when we get into talking about how this can be helpful for addictions because a, a big part of relapse is the, the value that are placed on some of those relapsing thoughts. And so, um, so, so, you know, this ability to, uh, you know, I mean, we, we have this, uh, let's say you're going back to that example of when you're in bed and your, your head's going a thousand miles an hour and you finally do fall asleep. Then you, when you wake up in the morning, you have your first thought and you're probably also already putting a judgment on what's going to happen, how that day's going to go, or at least the morning's going to go, or, you might wake up and go, oh, this is going to be a long day, right? Already placing a, a value on the day, which does influence, you know, how you feel and how you think. So, so the, the tougher part of mindfulness is, is that staying in the moment, acknowledging that, you know, you're going to have lots of thoughts and feelings, and that's all they are, are thoughts and feelings. And that you, the, the amount of, um, you know, 
the amount of value that you place on those, the, 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 is going to be really up to you, but it does involve having to acknowledge that you're placing a value and then bringing it back and going, okay, no, it's just a day, you know, it's not going to be a long day. It's just the day, you know, so just simply kind of going back and neutralizing the thought. And ultimately all of this promises to, to really heighten your awareness. Um, and, uh, and that's, I mean, it, it's it, one of the things for me that, it, that has been really significant is that when, I, when, I'm, when I'm more mindful, when I'm practicing mindfulness, when I'm really, and, I, and, I, and I'll, I'll tell you, I research this and I study it and I think about it all the time. Me practicing it is another story oftentimes. So I, I think what I've done in the past 15 years is that I've gotten very aware of when I'm not being mindful. So that's at least I have the awareness piece. But um, um, so, you know, for, for others, though, I think it's important that um, to, to, to give, you know, give yourself space to learn this uh, as skills. Uh, think about these two components and just practice, practice, practice. Keep going to the gym, so to speak, and letting your mind do these kinds of exercises over time. You know, and there's lots of very specific ways to get to, get to that with the mind, like meditation being the primary component of that. Um, but it can be uh, really tricky. So this operational definition that Bishop gives us is, makes a lot of sense to me. And it's a great clinical tool for clinicians to bring into their practice and say, yeah, let's talk about what mindfulness is because it can feel really, you know, out there if you, if you don't get it down into these components, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And so with this operational definition and with the, the goal of mindfulness a lot, um, really focused in, how does this intersect with addiction work? You're, you're mentioning values. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would say that, I would say that addiction is a, a disease of anticipatory thinking. So, you know, what really is happening in addiction uh, is, is threefold. One is that there are people that you know, have the propensity or uh, predisposition to addiction are genetically uh, and neurobiologically predisposed to that. And part of that is what's happening in their brain around, you know, dopamine and um, serotonin, um, you know, levels and that being dysregulated so that folks that are, you know, and this has been in my experience and, and I've, it's, it's probably in the thousands, Reese, of people that I've treated for addictions because of the, the nature of, of addiction treatment is group work. And so when there's 15, 20 people in your group over, you know, 10, 15 years of practice, it really adds up. But, but I, you know, even in the individual and also in the individual work that I've done is that I've learned one thing about that's been common across that is that folks felt different from the very beginning. They knew, you know, they didn't know, obviously as a kid, they didn't know they were going to grow up and have this propensity. And then at some point that they were going to be introduced to drugs and alcohol and that that introduction corrected some deficiencies and dysregulations that felt good enough that they, it made them want to go back. Um, and when they keep going back, then the brain starts to create this memory loop that's been well documented neurobiologically that we can actually change the way that, um, you know, the, that the brain's processing memories, uh, uh, particularly of reward. And so, um, so, it, so this neurobi neurobiological piece cannot be discounted. We have to address that first and foremost to understand that, the, that folks with addictions 
are have different brains than people who don't have addictions. Um, and the the second piece to that is uh, you know is environmental and cultural and social. I mean, there are, um, you know, there are tougher scenarios to grow up in and to be in and have to survive in than others. And so that's also another piece to that. But I would say that, and then, you know, psychological, there are things that are happening in the brain too that, uh, that set up, you know, a, a perfect storm, so to speak, for addiction to happen. So, so, th so this, this idea that, um, that people feel different from the very beginning. Um, and then they get introduced to something that sort of corrects that deficiency. Um, you know, it makes, it makes complete sense that they would want to go back and, and, and get involved in that. And then, and then it turns into this loop and the loop is the addictive process. And so um, where, so where we have failed as an addiction, um, you know, treatment field is that we haven't, we haven't risen uh, to the level of our interventions that we provide. We haven't risen to the level uh, that is sufficient to meet the needs of that neurobiological de um, deficit. So for instance, um, and Reese, you might even heard me say this in class a few times. I, 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 you know, I, I say it sort of jokingly, but it's, it's, it, but it's also true. Um, you know, a lot of things that we might ask someone in recovery to do, we get them in a, to a treatment center uh, and we, we ask them to do things like, well, when you feel a craving, go take a walk, right? Okay, well, walks are great, and walks in nature are great, and they do have restorative um, components to that, but it in no way matches the level of snorting an Oxycontin in, in terms of getting a dopamine dump in the brain, which is what happens when you, you, you take drugs, and uh, so our, 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 you know, taking drugs and, and drinking are high yield reward um, components. I mean, you get a high reward from that. A lot of our recovery interventions are low yield. We, we ask them to do things that don't match up to the, to the level of snorting an Oxycontin. So, so what we end up, or, or whatever, you know, or, or, or you know, shooting uh, heroin, whatever it might be, and so we, so what we have to start thinking about is what interventions can we offer that actually will change the brain neurobiologically um, at a, you know, in a more permanent um, and immediate kind of sense. And what we have found in the research for, for addictions and, and mindfulness is that uh, mindfulness meditation and long-term mindfulness practice changes the, the, the structure of the brain. It actually reduces the amygdala, which is the, the, that sort of that primitive part of the brain that reacts to stress and, um, and, uh, uh, you know, and it has this immediate reactivity. It actually shrinks that and allows the prefrontal cortex to thicken. This is all from meditation. And once that prefrontal cortex thickens, then what is happening is that you're getting um, this ability to uh, have a stimulus, like a craving event or, a, you know, a, a trigger event that might trigger a craving. And you're, and you're, you're allowing the brain to have more of a capacity to th think through that process before reacting, right? Wow. And um, uh, Tara Brock, who is, I don't know if you're familiar with Tara, but Tara Brock does some great work. And, you know, I suggest everyone go check out her stuff and her website. She has a great quote and it says, mindfulness is a pause. It's the space between stimulus 
and response, and this is where the choice lies. So, so mindfulness promises us that we can change structurally the brain, neurobiologically we make changes in the brain with mindfulness, so that, that the, 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 the intensity that comes with an addicted brain is reduced and, we're, and it's replaced with more um, critical thinking skills, um, thought processes, um, uh, more of a sort of a, a measured reaction to any types of responses that are happening. <clears throat> I'm not sure that that's happening in that dramatic sense with a lot of the other things that we ask folks to do um, in, in recovery. So let me just make sure I'm getting this right. So when you're using drugs, you're getting this high yield dopamine dump, a lot, lot of chemicals flooding your brain. And the traditional addictions work has been, oh, you, you're having a cue, you're having a trigger, you're anticipating using right now. Mm-hmm. Go take a walk. Go mm-hmm. call your sponsor. Yeah, call your sponsor. Do some deep breathing, yeah. which is giving a low yield amount as opposed to like riding the roller coaster of this, you know, <laughs> of this huge dopamine hit. Mm-hmm. And while mindfulness isn't, you know, matching that high yield dopamine release in and you don't get this huge release from sitting and doing a 10 minute meditation. But what it's doing is it's building resiliency in your prefrontal cortex so that you're able to keep your brain online longer to make decisions and think through the consequences potentially of going and using. Yeah. It's a long-term plan. Mm-hmm. You know, it is, it, yeah, you're not getting, you know, you're not going to go meditate and then all this dopamine's getting dumped into your brain and you're feeling like, you, you know, you just, you just took drugs, although it can feel good. Um, it, um, yeah, it is a long-term plan. So that's where the sell is to our clients because clients, you know, not only do clients start the process and I mean, you know, before their clients, before they're addicted, before they ever pick up drugs and alcohol, they have these dysregulations in the brain. Um, and so they're already starting at this deficit, this dysregulation in the brain generally has to do with the, you know, sort of the dopamine receptors and not being able to feel, you know, not being able to um, you know, pass back and forth this dopamine so that you can feel this mood regulation and feel good and feel joy and feel, you know, intensity of life. And, and, and folks, you know, my, my experience with working with clients are they tell me that they never felt those things. Um, they felt flat and that they felt, um, you know, unsatisfying and so um and they felt different than they always felt like they were on the outside uh, looking in on things and so um uh, you know but then when they they do get introduced to somewhere along the lines they get introduced to drugs and alcohol and it does correct that and then they engage in you know abusive use of drugs and alcohol it further disrupts the neurobiology of the brain. So a, a brain that was already sort of dis, dysregulated gets more dysregulated with the use, repeated use of drugs and alcohol. Then we put, a, then we put folks in treatment and, you know, we, we say, all right, here's some things. And, and, and I'm, you know, I'm not, you know, there are things, all of these things, I think all of these things can work in tandem together, but we, we're going to have to do more than what we, what we generally do. And, um, you know, so I think that's that that's the advent of in you know medication-assisted treatment that's come along in the addictions field is this idea that we got to fix, you know, we got to help fix something going on in the brain. We got to fix things neurobiologically that are really dysregulated now after repeated use. Uh, we can't just send folks out and say go to 
to a meeting and talk to your sponsor and and we can't even say you know rely on a higher power because you know there's we got a 40 to 60 percent relapse rate out of the first you know in the first year after treatment for folks and this reliance on 12 step and um and you know these things that are aren't really giving the high yields that we need back in recovery um we just we we I think there's a place for them, but we, we also need to think about what is going on neurobiologically. We need to think about medications. We need to think about things like mindfulness that can, you know, what is really going to change structurally things in the brain. And so, um, yeah, I think it's, it's important for us to, uh, to be open to um, doing things differently in the field. Great. Yeah. And so with mindfulness and with that piece of, you know, what's making it so effective is this neurobiological restructuring that's occurring that's building that, that space between uh, reaction and response. And that's what's so important in the field of addiction. And it sounds like that's something that you are bringing into your research in, in this field as well. Would you mind sharing what you're currently focusing on? Yeah, I'm doing a couple of different things, you know, so neurobiology has really consumed my, my thoughts, um, I would say for a while now. And um, more than ever, I firmly believe that we have to understand and treat the neurobiological deficit and dysregulation in the brain if we're gonna really uh, adequately address uh, addiction. Um, and so, uh, so right now uh, I'm doing a couple of things. I'm actually starting a study. Um, we're in the midst of doing that. I'm actually doing it with two students um, where we're going to be looking at um, what are the important neurobiological um, aspects of that, uh, you know, what are the foundational pieces neurobiologically that need to happen uh, for education for clients and for families of clients too. So I, the, the purpose of the study really is to see what, what is getting presented around neurobiological education and addictions treatment because I think that that could also go a long way in reducing a lot of the shame and the guilt that comes along with having this, this, uh, this disorder, this brain disorder. And it would help families understand what's going on with the person that's in their life, their loved one, and uh, understanding that these are not choices necessarily that they're making to just um, you know, use drugs and alcohol for, uh, for the fun of it, that there, there's this real neurobiological drive that's, that's, that's pushing that. And so um, we're gonna be doing some survey research, finding out across the country uh, what in treatment centers, what is going, along, going on around this neurobiological education. I wanna take that, so that's sort of a first wave of this study, and I wanna take that, and I, then I wanna incorporate um, you know, these aspects of, of what I think is important neurobiologically, and then develop a, um, a, a program, really, that is, doable for clinicians on the ground in treatment centers to be able to um, use to, to, to um, teach to clients. Um, breaking down mindfulness into these components that we talked about, uh, developing it as a skill and being able to show uh, that, you know, why this is important, that there's this neurobiological change that can come and that can really shift the, the, the trajectory of, of someone's recovery. So those two things, I do a lot of um, presentations at conferences and trainings about um, interventions around mindfulness and, and how it can help be helpful. Uh, you, uh, I, I um, uh, will be doing one at, at our 
North Carolina Counseling Association um, uh, conference that's coming up. I'm going to be talking about five strategies to teach clients to uh, mindful, mindful strategies to teach clients to help them reduce their potential for relapse. Relapse all is all anticipatory. Um, addiction is all anticipatory, meaning that once someone is get, gets clean and sober, um, you know, it's really a cognitive game then. Um, they're, they're, anticip they're anticipating um, when, they get a when they get a stressor or a trigger, they're anticipating um, what drugs and alcohol would be able to do for them to deal with that stressor or trigger. But the, the, the problem is, is that because of euphoric recall, which is a very, very real thing in our field, which is that, is that addicts general, genuinely uh, only tend to remember the, the positive aspects of their last, you know, their, their use. They, they remember the, the, the relief they get, that temporary relief, even, even though it may be just 10 minutes or whatever it is, they, they really focus on that as being the reward they tend to forget about sort of all of the consequences and stress and, you know, the relationship issues, job issues, all of the chaos that comes after using. Um, so the brain does that because of that sort of memory loop that's developed. Um, and I think that mindfulness is a great way to give more space between triggers and response. And that space in between that will allow people to just kind of do things like, um, you know, just live with the feeling. I mean, and that's something that addicts are not very good at doing is having not only just negative things happening in their life, you know, 12% of relapses happen because of positive feelings. Um, I've had, I remember a client, it was really profound telling me once, um, that and they, they had relapsed they came in and, and said i you know I, I slipped i relapsed and we, we were talking through that and it was in the and after it was all said i mean there was a lot of there's a lot of cognitive things that go into a relapse but but the thing that really pushed it over the edge was that it was the first day of spring and it was a beautiful day this was i lived in wilmington at the time it was a coastal town beach was there and it was the first day where we really had sunshine and warmth and that was the day that was what pushed that person over over to uh, using that day because because it felt good and you want, they wanted to celebrate that and they wanted to feel even better and so they're so so triggers are are negative and positive and we need to help clients develop more space between that trigger and the response. And one of the things that we know works is mindfulness. Yeah, the research that I've seen is that a, a 30 minute a day mindfulness practice, and that doesn't have to be 30 straight minutes, it can be throughout the day in different modalities, but 30 minutes a day for eight weeks is enough to change your brain scan on a functional MRI. Yep, yeah. And, and that was part of the, the research I was talking about, you know, shrinking the amygdala and thickening the prefrontal cortex was an eight week study. So we're talking about eight weeks where there are literally physical changes in the brain. So that's pretty impressive. And for me, that's something that, you know, I would say we, we need to give some attention to. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, we've, we've really fit <laughs> like a semester's graduate course into a, a short podcast. And, um, you know, in recapping kind of um, the main takeaways from our conversation, I'm wondering you know, what are a few things you think that everyone and anyone who's listening to this could benefit from 
just knowing about the intersection between mindfulness and addiction? Yeah, I, I, would, I would definitely start with saying that mindfulness is accessible and it is a, um, you know, a skill that can be built for anybody. So for any, any, I think as a general well-being practice, it works well for that. But for folks that have addictions issues, um, you know, we, we can't ignore um, the research that's coming out um, very quickly. I, I, would, I would direct everyone to Sarah Bowen's work around relapse-based, um, um, you know, um, mindfulness-based relapse prevention. Um, where they're actually formalizing this uh, into, um, you know, sort of um, workbooks for clients that they can use. And Sarah Bowen's work is showing that um, this is reducing uh, re uh, relapse potential um, uh, more effectively than traditional relapse plans and CBT and treatment programs. And so, um, so I would say uh, that if clinicians can learn more about how to access mindfulness as a cognitive skill that can be taught um, and that it can be structured into a way that clients will be able to incorporate it into their life. And one of the cool things about mindfulness is that there's so many ways to learn it now because it is so prevalent. Um, you know, a client can have a, a, an app on their phone and spend that 10, you know, 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the evening um, using a guided meditation even. Um, and now there's some uh, apps that are even focused on, you know, mindfulness and people with addictions. So, so there's, there's ways to be guided through this. It can be really helpful. The research um, bears it out that this is, can be in a really effective way to treat addictions in conjunction with other things too. Um, so my, my, my advice to clinicians uh, out there, counselors listening, is to uh, look into this if this is not something that they're doing and and add this as a part of uh, as a tool to their toolbox to other things that they might find that is working too right so it sounds like a really integrative opportunity absolutely not, not a standalone not a standalone it, you know that that's part of the research too shows that i mean you're not just going to take mindfulness and that be the only piece of the intervention it's it's part of a, a well-rounded plan for sure you mentioned Sarah Bowen's work. Um, I'm wondering, are there any other resources that you'd recommend checking out? Well, I think if you want to, if you're starting from scratch, I mean, certainly going to John Kabat-Zinn's work and uh, sort of, he's sort of the guru of the field for the most part. And uh, under, you know, understanding mindfulness as a whole is, a, he would be a good uh, person to go and read. He's got several, well, many, many books and many um, articles that someone could go and find um, in, in videos. Uh, and Sarah Bowen's work, um, I, I did a study in 2015 using mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, so MBCT. Um, in that study, I, I took a, a 11 uh, nursing students who, who, who reported significant levels of stress, and I, and I spent 11 weeks with them training them in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and then we, you know, we measured their stress levels through, through that 11 week period. And we saw over, over, you know, overwhelmingly that the, that intervention helped reduce their perceived stress. And so, so for my, you know, for those of you out there that are fellow cognitive, um, you know, cognitive therapists or CBT folks, there is a version of this as well. Mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. Um, Siegel is the uh, uh, person that you'd want to look into for that. Um, and, uh, and it is a combination of cognitive therapy therapy and mindfulness 
uh, mindfulness. And so that's a, a good, um, I think, uh, avenue to go down to. Great. Thank you. Um, and yeah, I'll add some links at the, you know, uh, on the webpage with some sure. articles that you shared and um, links to these other authors that you're mentioning. Um, any final parting thoughts on the subject of mindfulness and addiction? Well, I, you know, I think that we're just, uh, the, I would say the biggest trend in counseling as a whole right now is neuroscience. Um, and um, we, I think that what we're going to see is that even what we know now about the brain and, and mindfulness and, and, and the changes that we're seeing, particularly for, the, for those with addictions, is just the tip of the iceberg. I think we're getting ready to see some things. There's some interesting information coming out of NIDA. You know, Nora, uh, Nora Vokoff uh, certainly is one of the leaders there who does this um, neuroscience around addiction. And um, I think that we're going to see some really interesting things happening in the next 10 to 15 years in the research that, sh that um, is going to uh, be pretty profound in uh, counselors learning how to address um, neurobiology in their work. Great. Well, thank you so much for uh, the presentation, Dr. Schwartz. I did promise uh, some rapid fire questions. We're gonna see how I'm, this goes. I'm scared. I'm scared of <laughs> um, So we've got eight questions and just off the top of your head. Okay. okay. All right. So what's the most recent book you read for pleasure? <laughs> uh, I actually read uh, the most recent book I read for pleasure was a, uh, a book called um, The Neuroscience of Addiction. <laughs> Spoken like a true counselor. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that was the last book I read, and I, I did. It was for pleasure. I mean, it was it was amazing. So great. Yeah. Okay. Uh, favorite band of the past year. Um, the Mood Kings. Childhood hero. Evil Knievel. Dogs or cats, and why? Dogs. Dogs. Uh, do, uh, dogs are uh, are counselors in fur feel similarly. Okay, so I know that you live in Boone, North Carolina. What's your favorite restaurant in town? I love Capone's Pizza. I'm obsessed with it. Okay, um, and this is, this is a question born from our classes together. What is your favorite phrase that all the kids are saying these days? <laughs> um... I don't know that this is the most current, but that whole yeet thing, I was trying to get involved in that and figure out how, how to incorporate that into my own language, but I like yeet. Great. Um, guilty pleasure that you feel comfortable sharing here. Um, well, I, I, I like, um, I like to veg on Netflix. Um, and I, I only have two go-tos and that's the office and Seinfeld. So, I spend probably, um, when I want to blank out, that's what I go do. Okay. And finally, last question, pretty broad. What do you think is something worth remembering? Uh, this is going to be cliche, but that we're all in this together. I think that's really appropriate given the times. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Schwartz. This has been a real pleasure. I'm really grateful that you agreed to be my first guest on this podcast. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to, to share it out there. Thank you. Well, thank you. And I'm honored to be the first guest. And, and uh, I look forward to um, 
hearing the rest of the episodes. All right. This is the Counseling Connection Podcast. For additional information about the intersection between mindfulness and addiction, including articles and additional reading, as well as information about Dr. Mark Schwartz, you may visit reesewells.com. Copyright by Reese Wells, music by Alan Lawrence, artwork by Brady Lawrence.